Good evening, everyone. My name is David, and I am an alcoholic. About a month ago, I got a call from a man named John, and uh, he asked me if I'd be willing to speak at this conference. And it was at a time when I was kind of low in spirit. I, uh, I said, yes, I would. Uh, it would be an honor and a privilege. And uh, I think the Creator works in mysterious ways. It's probably one of the highlights of my year, like being up here tonight, sharing with you people. When I talk, I just tell my story. Um, I was born on an Indian reserve 120 miles north of here. I was the youngest child of a single mom. I have two older sisters, four and five years older than me. And I was born into a very humble home. It was actually a shack in the bush. We had no running water, no electricity, uh, no indoor plumbing. But, but we had a lot of love and closeness. Like we had the wood stoves and coil oil lamps. And the biggest highlight of that time for me was when we had visitors. See, our people are storytellers, and they'd come and visit, and by the coil of lamps, they'd stay up late and tell stories, one, 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 one each taking a turn telling stories. And uh, as, as a little guy, I used to really cherish that. I loved listening to the stories because it fired my imagination. It was a wonderful time for me. And like I said, I was, uh, I was the youngest child in my family, so being the baby of the family, I was spoiled rotten <laughs> by three wonderful women, like, you know, my two sisters and my mom. And uh, it was a good family to be born into. Uh, lots of love, lots of closeness, and uh, lots of nurturing. And they say what you learn in your first years of life, your formative years before you start school, sort of molds you for what you will be later in life and what you will believe in. And uh, to this day, I love women. <laughs> I think they're the most wonderful creatures in the whole universe. <laughs> and I think that will stay with me forever. <laughs> um, I was taken from my home when I was five years old. Uh, a car came and uh, I, I was the last child of my mother's three children to be taken. And uh, there used to be a law back then. It was for Indian residential schools. And if... Uh, if you were of a certain denomination or whatever, you went to a Catholic school or an Anglican school or some church-run school. And my case was, was I was Catholic, so I went to a boarding school run by Roman Catholic nuns and priests. And it was about 200 miles from where I live. And it was a long journey, and I was just a little guy, and uh, I, I didn't know what, what it was going to be like. I was kind of excited going until I got there. Then <laughs> the excitement quickly vanished. <laughs> I was given a number. I was given a haircut. I was given a set of clothes, dressed like everybody else. I was segregated from my sisters, who I loved very dearly. I couldn't see them all the time I was in that school. They were in the same school, but we were se separate. We weren't allowed to talk together. We weren't allowed to hug and, you know, be a family anymore. And it was a very lonely time, um, very harsh time for me, too, because, uh, you see, 
in that school, there were very strict disciplinarians, like the Roman Catholic nuns and priests. I, they had to be in order to keep us in line. And uh, because they were so strict and so cold and callous, like a lot of our people grew to resent them. And I looked like them. <laughs> I have hazel eyes and fair skin. <laughs> that wasn't a good thing in Indian residential school. I used to get beat up just about every single day that I was in there for seven years. And uh, it wasn't an easy time. I have a niece who just wrote a paper about that. Like, you hear a lot of the negativity about what happened in these schools. And I experienced all of that. I, I was one of those uh, Indian residential school survivors. But I won't go into detail about that. My niece, who uh, is a social work student in the University of Winnipeg, uh, is wrote a paper last term about Indian residential schools, but they wanted to know if there was anything positive, so she came to me with this new slant on things. <laughs> what was good about this? <laughs> so I had to think, and, and thank God for that, because, you know, in everything there is good, in everything there is good. And the nuns and priests were really good teachers. Uh, I remember getting a very good education from them. I learned how to speak English, which isn't my first language. I learned how to speak French, which was their first language. And I learned how to speak Latin, which was the language of the church back in the uh, 50s and 60s. Like we used to say the last mass in Latin. And so... I had a really good knowledge of those languages at a young age, and I learned my lessons really well. I was a straight-A student all the time I was in Indian residential school. And that helped me later in life. As, as I tell my story, you'll see how it helped me. Uh, I got out of there when I was 12 years old, and I was returned to my mother in the Indian residential school system had an effect on the parents as well as the children and my my mother had since moved from the reserve into the city of Winnipeg here and she uh, had congregated where a lot of our native people congregated back then on Main Street it was called Skid Row per capita back in the 60s we probably had the biggest Skid Row in Canada there were bars that stretched all the way from that underpass on Main Street right to where the uh, Centennial Concert Hall is now. Both sides of the street were filled with bars. Uh, the next street over, King Street, was also filled with bars. Next street, Princess, was filled with bars. Even the next street over, Adelaide, was filled with bars. And uh, some of the cross streets, like William, had a bar on it. Like, you know, and uh, A lot of our native people congregated there and drank. Drink, drinking had become a way of life for my mother when I was reintroduced to her at age 12. She was a hard-drinking woman on Main Street. She lived on Main Street. When I was reunited with her, we moved into a one-room apartment on Main Street, and uh, there were seven people living in that one-room apartment. We lived in squalor. Like, you know, it was a very uh, crowded place. My mother and her boyfriend at the time lived there... Uh, my older sister and her boyfriend and her best friend and her boyfriend lived in this apartment and as well as I in one room, a single room. And uh, I remember starting school in Winnipeg and uh, 
that feeling of isolation that I felt in Indian residential school. By not being Indian enough, I felt the opposite in white school because now I was too Indian. <laughs> I spoke with an accent. I dressed very poorly. My mother bought me one set of new clothes for the whole school year. That's all she could afford. And uh, I wore the same clothes pretty well every day to school. Like, you know, and uh, when I uh, went to school, I saw other kids that got to change every day. I invited one of the boys from my school home when I was young, and he, uh, he was in shock when I showed him where I lived. Like, he couldn't believe anyone could live in a one-room apartment with seven people. And I didn't know this was strange, because before coming from residential school, I lived on the reserve in a little shack, so it was no big deal, like living in an apartment with plumbing and electricity. Like, and I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> So I found out that uh, where he lived, his room was the size of our room. <laughs> he had it all to himself. And he had a mother and a father and a nice big house. Had lots of clothes. And I felt for the first time a tremendous feeling of shame. Like, you know, I was really ashamed to go back to school after that because I figured he'd tell everybody in the school, like, you know, how I lived, where I lived. And I never invited a, another boy from my class home after that. As a matter of fact, I start skipping school. I didn't want to be in school. One of the reasons I start skipping school was because at that early age, uh, when my people drank, I used to sneak drinks from them. And I felt the effect of alcohol at that young age, that strange sensation, like, you know, that uh, seemed to be an allergic reaction. It went through my whole body. Then that obsession of the mind kicked in immediately. I think from the first drunk, I was an alcoholic. I remember desperately wanting more, even though I got violently ill the first time I got drunk. First time I got drunk, I saved up $2. Back then, they used to sell 26 uh, big bottle of wine, like a 26-ounce bottle of wine for 90 cents in the liquor commission. But at the bootleggers, it was $2. Since I couldn't buy it at the liquor commission, I bought my first bottle of wine at the bootleggers for $2. It was called Jordan Branvin Sherry. It had a kick, commonly known as goof. <laughs> and I got gloriously drunk. <laughs> I remember going into my little apartment where I lived and uh, laying down on the cot that I, that I had in there, and the room starts spinning, and I got up, and I was violently ill. And I start throwing up, and I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to die. And my people, who are hard-drinking people, just looked at me and said, drink some more, you little bugger, that'll teach you. <laughs> There's no sympathy, you know. So I did. Like, at the next opportunity, I, I drank again. And every opportunity after that, I desperately needed more. And as a young man, like, I start missing school. I start getting in trouble with the law. And as a juvenile, like I, I, I ended up with 56 charges on my juvenile record. I was a, I was a really bad, bad boy. And uh, I, I got caught 56 times because I was under the influence of alcohol or in a state of blackout. I used to be so desperate for drink, I'd stand outside the bars on Main Street and wait for my mom to come out at closing time. And... Uh, when the people came out at closing time, they'd buy vendor beer. 
and they'd uh, line up outside the bar and wait for taxis and try hail taxis. And uh, when a taxi would pull up, a whole bunch of people would rush that cab and try claim it as their own, like you know, because they wanted to get to wherever they were going. And when they did that, sometimes they'd leave their beer unattended. <laughs> And me being young and agile, I'd grab a case of beer and run. <laughs> because with a case of beer, I could get into any drinking party. Didn't matter if I was 13 years old or how old, like, you know. They'd see me with the 24 and they'd say, come on in, join the party, you know. Not necessarily because of me, but because of what I had. <laughs> and uh, that lasted for a while, but then pretty soon people remembered who I was and saw me in the crowd. And, they beat me up or kill me or whatever, like, you know, for stealing their beer. Just to let you know how desperate I was, I'd stand outside the liquor commission in broad daylight, and uh, I'd wait for someone older, more feeble than I, uh, to come out with a bottle. And sometimes in broad daylight, I'd just walk up and snatch that bottle from that person and run, because I desperately needed to drink. That was from age 12 on, like, you know, uh, Finally, I got into so much trouble as a juvenile that they, um, they used to lock me up in a place called Vaughn Street Detention Center. It's uh, across from Memorial Park. It's the old Vaughn Street Jail. It's a historical building now. People can go on tours in there during the summer. <laughs> and, uh, I, I want to go one of these days because uh, I have a history there. <laughs> I escaped from there four times. One time I even escaped from the hole, and that, that's probably made some kind of history here over the years. I don't think anyone else escaped from the hole. For those of you who don't know what a hole is, it's a dank, dark place in the basement, usually very secure. has a steel door, cement walls. It's like being put in a concrete coffin. And I'd go crazy whenever they'd throw me in the hole, and I'd just do whatever I could to get out. And once I actually got out, some kid threw a pipe in, and I dug through the brick wall adjacent into the next cell and then out. And a matron caught me, and I took her hostage because he also threw in a knife, and uh, they opened all the doors for me. Like, uh, and uh, away I went. So at the age of 15, they put me in a place called Headingley Correctional Institute, which is an adult jail just outside of Winnipeg. And uh, I escaped from there. <laughs> And when I was recaptured, uh, they uh, they were going to beat me up because that's what they did to escapees back then. But there was no human rights back before 1969. So they could do pretty well anything they wanted to. But th there was still rights for children, and I was still a child. I was 15 or 16 years old, so they decided not to beat me in the manner that most escapees were beaten. Instead, they uh, decided to put me on death row because they used to have the gallows in Headingley. And uh, at the age of 15, I sat on death row with a man who was awaiting his execution. And uh, not to be executed, just so that they could teach me a lesson. They just wanted to scare me into knowing where I was heading as, as a juvenile offender. And uh, what's really neat about that is, you know, they say we're people who normally don't mix I was telling my story one time and an old man got up after I finished my talk and he came and introduced me, introduced himself to me as the Death Watch commander on death row when I was 15. <laughs> he 
He became my best friend. I, I love the man to this day. He's a member of my group, and uh, like you know, he actually asked me to sponsor him at one time. <laughs> Miracles, eh? <laughs> I um, went from there to a place called Maximum Security for Juveniles when I was 17. It was an escape-proof place they had built in the center of the women's jail in Portage La Prairie. It was for juvenile offenders who were going to be transferred to the penitentiary system. At the age of 17, I was transferred there. And uh, while in there, uh, they used to give us a piece of paper about the size of this. And uh, first of all, when you went in, like you were put in there naked. It was like a cage, like you see in the zoo, like steel cages. And they had a mattress on the floor, and they put you in naked. If you behaved yourself for one day, you could get a pair of shorts. If you behaved yourself for two days, you could get a, a blanket, a pillow, and something else. There was five things you could get. You never got clothes, never got shoes, anything like that. Just a pair of shorts, a blanket, a pillow, sheet, you know. And uh, if you messed up, they took everything away from you again. And you stayed in that little cage, and they fed you in that cage. And if you, if you uh, wrote on this piece of paper each day, uh, you got fed. If you didn't write on it, you didn't get fed. That was, that was the deal. And uh, it was really harsh. And the kids that were in there were, were given Valium to keep them docile. And again, I thanked the nuns and priests because I read up on Valium and I found out that it was uh, something that rel was a muscle relaxant. It made you, uh, you know very relaxed and I, I, I didn't want to be that because I, was all, I always needed my wits to stay sharp in order to escape if I got the opportunity, but I never got the opportunity. <laughs> so most of the kids would write on this paper, F off, F off, F off, and a bunch of obscenities. While I, in turn, uh, used that education the nuns and priests gave me and wrote very eloquent letters to the superintendent of the Home for Boys in Portage La Prairie. A place where I'd never been, like, you know, it was, a, it was an open setting and I'd never been locked up there ever. Uh, it was either Vaughn Street Jail, which was a, like a dungeon, or, or Headingley, which was like another dungeon. And I pleaded with them to give me an opportunity to be sent there instead of sent to the penitentiary. And while I was writing these letters, they tested me, like they, uh, they gave me two tests. They gave me an IQ test. And at age 17, because of the education the nuns and priests had given me, I scored genius on my IQ test. They gave me another test called a Horshack inkblot test, where they flash cards at you with little inkblot sort of. And uh, on that test, I scored a maturity level of age five. I was a 17-year-old genius with a maturity of a five-year-old. And because of the results of those two tests, they, uh, they allowed me to have a hearing where they told me that if they were to give me a chance to go to the home for boys, I was to be an angel. I wasn't a fighting. Fighting was in my nature. It's all I knew. Ever since I was five years old, I had to fight to survive in institutions. And I didn't know any other way. And uh, they told me I couldn't fight. They told me I'd have to go to school. And uh, that was okay because I loved school. They told me I couldn't run away. The other option I had to fighting was running. I would either fight or run, you know. And uh, they told me I was never to run away. I was to obey all the rules. And if I was to abide by these rules, 
till my 18th birthday, they'd review my case and possibly not transfer me to adult court. And the reason I desperately wanted that was because I heard the horror stories of the kids that were transferred to the penitentiary. 15, 16-year-old kids were being brutalized in the, in, in the penitentiary after they got transferred. And they tell us about these things that happened and uh, scared the hell out of me, like I didn't want to go there. So I got the deal, and I, I got to go to the Home for Boys, and I made it till my 18th birthday, and I didn't get in any trouble. I got in one fight. It was with a guy who saved my life just an hour before <laughs> I was drowning in a lake after falling into the water, like I was water skiing, and I hit the water at a really high speed and was kind of dazed, and I got stuck in some soft mud or whatever at the bottom of the lake, and I was thinking, and this kid jumped out and pushed me up and out of the out of the uh, muck so I could survive. And uh, a little later, we were standing in line. Back then, they used to give us tobacco, eh? Like, you know, we were allowed to smoke, even kids, eh? Like, they'd give us tobacco to roll. And I was rolling myself a cigarette, and he come walking up, and he slapped my hands <laughs> and knocked the cigarette out of my hands. And without thinking, I just automatically got in a fight with him. And uh, he just saved my life, like... <laughs> The reason I'm telling that story is because he's one of us now. I, I don't know if he's in the crowd, but <laughs> thank you for saving my life. I'm sorry that I got in a fight with you. Anyway, uh, I, I made it. I made it to my 18th birthday. I got out of there, and um, by that time my mind had cleared, and I'd, I'd been educated a little better. And uh, I knew that... Once I got out and I got into the drinking and the drugs, I would be penitentiary bound really fast because I was a blackout drinker. And all my people drank, like they drank to celebrate, they drank to grieve, they drank out of boredom. And it was a way of life for my people now to drink. And that's what I was going home to. And uh, in order to protect me from my worst enemy, me, I decided... I'd do anything to stay out of prison. And uh, my first plan, plan A, was uh, I was going to get into religion. So I, I joined a Bible study group, and I became a Christian. And uh, I studied the Bible. But we alcoholics do things to extreme. We're not like normal people. I was one of these... Bible study people that went around with a Bible everywhere I went and preached to everyone I met. And you got to remember, my people are a bunch of gypsies, outlaws, tramps, and thieves. <laughs> they don't like being preached to. Pretty soon when they'd see me coming, I'd see the drapes close, I'd hear the locks click shut, and I'd be standing there knocking with my Bible, and no one was answering the door. Pretty soon I had no family or friends to associate with other than my... Even the people that I studied the Bible, I thought I was a little fanatic. <laughs> I'm not saying anything bad about religion. It really did work. It kept me out of trouble. It's just that I took it to extreme. Like, you know, and if you take anything to extreme, it's not good. And uh, I decided I had to find a new plan. So plan B was, if I find a wife, I get married, start having children get a job, you know, become responsible, that will keep me out of trouble. So that was plan B. So as a teenager, I found a teenage wife, and we start having babies. 
I couldn't marry her till she turned 16. She was 15 when she had my first child, 16 when she had my second child, 17 when she had my third child, and then someone said, hey, take it easy, David, you're going to wear out your poor wife. And I said, yeah, okay. So I stopped, we stopped. And I got a job, and I worked hard, and I, and I was really successful in anything that I, that I did. And I, uh, I trained with a millionaire here that comes from Winnipeg, like in one of his factories, he's a fashion person like you know and uh, in two years I was running one of his plants at the age of 20 then I went from there into retail management and I became the first native retail manager in Canada that Zellers had trained like you know and uh, I won merchandising awards with the company uh, awards of excellence and they'd never had those type of awards in their history and uh, I did really well with them but in that time that uh, I was married to my young wife, like she was growing up, she saw her, uh, her her classmates and friends graduating from high school and, you know, getting into relationships age appropriate or just starting their careers. And here she was trapped with a husband and three children. And I really empathize with young moms that have lots of children because it's a really hard job looking after a bunch of kids, you know, and a husband with a maturity level of five, you know. <laughs> anyway, my wife got restless and she started going out to the bars because I wasn't home very much. I, I worked till 10 o'clock every night in the department store and uh, she'd sneak out and go to the bar and, you know, hang out with her friends, get a babysitter when she could. Uh, and... Uh, Pretty soon she got an affair with a, a waiter from one of the bars that she frequented. And uh, through the grapevine, someone told me about it. Like, you know, I, I, I didn't want to believe it, but uh, they told me that if I was to leave work early one day and go to this address and check on this person, that, that I'd find my wife there. And uh, I did. And uh, one night I walked into this house where I was told to go and... Uh, found my wife in bed with another man, and uh, I went crazy, like I was prone to violence. I, I beat that man so bad, I, I would have killed him. I, I actually would have killed him. I didn't touch my wife, but I beat the man so bad that uh, he'd actually had one of his eyes coming out of the socket on one side. And uh, if it wasn't for my three-year-old son, who was in the company of my wife, as well as my other two children, my son walked in and started screaming hysterically because he'd never seen violence before. And uh, he snapped me out of my rage and saved that man's life and saved me from going to prison for life. Anyway, that was the end of my marriage. Uh, I um, ended up being charged with attempted murder. And uh, his friends from the bar, who were a bunch of tough kids, came and visited me and beat me in a similar manner. And I, I had to go in for uh, detached retina surgery on one eye, like, you know. And uh, it was an awful time. Like, we were at war, and I was always on guard, like, you know, with, with the friends of this man that I had beaten. And uh, my company, to come to my aid, decided to transfer me out of Winnipeg. They transferred me to Thunder Bay, Ontario. And they gave me the largest store in the country to manage. It was in Zellers County Fair, like, you know, in uh, Thunder Bay in 1979. I was transferred there. And... Uh, when I got there, I was lonely. I missed my 
children. I missed my wife, who had lost. I missed my family, as crazy as they were. And I started drinking again. And uh, I drank every day. And because I was the department store manager, I had access to a pharmacy, so I helped myself to uh, high-powered sedatives and, uh, and uppers, like, you know, and uh, not doctor-prescribed, just, you know, I just read up on stuff and, you know, took whatever I needed to fix me on any given day or for whatever was ailing me. And that combination started me put, start putting me into states of blackout again. It was about nine months of doing this that I started suffering from severe blackouts. And waking up from one of my blackouts, I know Gary's going to laugh, he's somewhere in the audience. I woke up on the Trans-Canada smashing a car up at 100 miles an hour. I had uh, robbed my own store of all the cash. <laughs> I had a gun in my car and 200 rounds of ammunition and 2,000 pills. And I didn't know what had happened. A uh, truck driver pulled me from the wreckage. And... Uh, I gathered as much money as I could into a little toolbox that was in the trunk. This car was full of money. Like, there's a lot of cash in a department store, especially the size that I was running. And I filled up this little box with, with as much cash as I could fill into it before I got in this truck and got a ride into Winnipeg. When I got into Winnipeg, I, I went to a friend's house, and I, I, I went into, like, a coma for three days. I was out for three days, I guess from the injuries and the accident. And when I woke up, my little friend whose house I was at was having a great time. He'd opened that box, that toolbox. <laughs> and he was out celebrating every day. He's having a great time. Like, you know, had lots of money, lots of booze. <laughs> and I asked him if he knew what my situation was. And he said, I don't know. He said, I don't know what you did. The cops won't say anything, but they're looking for you everywhere. And uh, I gathered what was left of the money, which was still a substantial sum, and I hopped on a train in Portage La Prairie and went to Vancouver. And in 1979, I started my last big drunk from April till July. In July of 1979, I came out of another blackout. And when I was coming out of this blackout, I was holding a man hostage and the police were yelling, release your hostage or we'll shoot. Thank God I came out in time because I released my hostage. I didn't even know why I was holding him hostage. <laughs> And uh, they put me in a prison called Ocala, which is in Burnaby, B.C. And uh, in that prison, they put me in a, a ward called the Bug Ward. Any of you don't know what the Bug Ward is in a prison, that's where they put all the crazy people. And I qualified. It was filled with schizophrenics and heroin addicts that were coming off heroin. And every day they, at 4 o'clock, they had a methadone program and other medication for the schizophrenics and bipolars or whatever they were, and uh, no medication for me. <laughs> My nerves were shot. These people were all nuts, and I couldn't do time like that. I'd done a total of 17 years in institutions up to this time. Never had a problem living in institutions. I knew what was going on all the time, and uh, this time I couldn't do time. So I did something I hadn't done in years. I, I got down and I did some foxhole praying. I got down in my cell and I prayed to God. I said, God, if you get me out of this prison, you can put me in any other prison in Canada, but if you get me out of this one, I promise I'll never drink or do drugs again. And I, I meant it. It was a sincere promise that I made to higher power. 
And after having said that prayer, I was taken to court in a place called New Westminster, which is a suburb adjacent to, uh, to uh, Burnaby, where I committed my offense. And uh, when I, uh, I was using an assumed name, not my own name. I had fake ID. And uh, under that assumed name, I was given conditional bail where you can just sign, sign for your own release. And the guard who took me to that uh, courtroom was a native guard, and that was really rare back in the 70s to have a native guard working in a, in a jail or in a prison. Anyway, this guy, after court, said, sign your papers here and take off, eh? And I said, no, I don't want to do that. I said, I got my personal belongings and my clothes and everything back at uh, Ocala. He says, look, I'm trying to do you a favor. Don't argue with me. Sign your paper and take off. Oh, I signed my paper and I took off. And when I got back to where I was living, the police had already been there. They were looking for me. They had made me from my fingerprints and my picture. They knew that I had three Canada-wide warrants for my arrest, and they were going to throw me right back in that same bug ward. But this guy cut me loose. I think that was God answering my prayer. Anyway, I came back to Winnipeg here, and uh, in the summer of 79, it was a really hot summer. I worked hard on construction with my brother-in-law, uh, he uh, got me a job building swimming pools, and that's how I detoxified for two weeks in the hot sun, sweating out all the alcohol and drugs. Two weeks into my job, I got my first paycheck, and it was coincidentally my brother-in-law's uh, birthday. So, family tradition, eh? you got to celebrate. <laughs> so I invited him to the bar, and uh, at the bar, I ordered him a beer. And I ordered myself a, a glass of Coke. Back then, they used to have it on tap, and it was thick and syrupy. And uh, they gave me my glass of Coke and his ice-cold beer. And uh, what do you call it? Um, my brother-in-law looks at me and says, how come you're not drinking? I says, well, I just don't want to. He says, you turn religious again? This is the guy that used to lock the, <laughs> lock the doors on me. I said, no. <laughs> I couldn't tell him I made this deal with God. Eh? He would, probably would have you know, laid me off or fired me on the spot. He says, do you have the dose? I said, no. <laughs> he says, well, then you have no excuse not to drink. I said, well, I just don't want to drink. Anyway, if you're new in recovery, don't go in the bar. <laughs> because... In the bar, I was looking at my brother-in-law's beer bottle, and on the outside of the beer bottle were little dewdrops forming, and they were running down. My mouth was watering. I wanted so desperately to have a beer, and before long, his coaxing got to me, and I said, oh, what the heck, give me a beer. I ordered a beer, and they brought it, and just as she put the beer down, and I put it to my lips and took my first swallow, I felt two hands grab me. I look up, it's two big policemen. <laughs> I broke my deal with God, so off to jail I went. <laughs> I believe that to this day. <laughs> anyway, I ended up in uh, Headingley uh, facing an attempted murder charge, and uh, which was dropped to uh, assault-causing bodily harm, which was stayed because the guy wouldn't come and testify against me. He was deathly afraid of me, and... 
for good cause, because I threatened to kill him if he came to court, you know. I meant it, yeah. <laughs> so after that trial was finished, I was taken under police escort to Thunder Bay, Ontario, where I, where I faced two more charges of grand theft, one for robbing my store and the other for stealing my roommate's brand-new 1978 Monza that I smashed up on the highway. In March of 19... March 13th of 1980, I was sentenced to one year in the Thunder Bay Correctional Center. It was a light sentence considering the seriousness of my crime. But my company had come to my my aide, like, you know, and told them that I was a really good employee, that I'd gone through a terrible marriage breakup, uh, that I'd been drinking excessively, and, like, you know, and that I probably wasn't in my right mind when this happened. And uh, they said they'd be willing to take restitution for the money lost, because a lot of the money was recovered in that car, like, you know, majority of it. Um, I uh, got one year, a one-year sentence. And uh, I went into that jail uh, afraid for my life because as the department store manager in Zellers, I used to arrest shoplifters for petty crimes. <laughs> and when you arrest people and they go to jail and you show up in jail, <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> it's not a safe place for you. So I went in very anonymous. I, uh, got, I got in there and I, uh, I worked on... I worked in the kitchen early in the morning. I got up 5 o'clock quietly before everyone else did so they wouldn't use my name. I uh, worked out on the weights. I, I worked out excessively. You know, we do things to extreme. I used to pump weights every day, and I got up to pumping 250 pounds on a curling bar like each day, and uh, like I was out of fear. I used to run track every day, too. They had a track in the, in the prison, and uh, I kept in top physical shape because I thought I might have to fight for my life in, in there. Then one day, uh, I was looking out the window. It was a Tuesday. And um, coming into the prison were a whole bunch of good-looking women. They say this uh, program works by attraction rather than promotion. <laughs> I asked the guy next to me who these women were, and he says, oh, those are AAs. And I says, what the hell are AAs? <laughs> he says, oh, they belong to a program called Alcoholics Anonymous. They're coming in for the open meeting with the prisoners. I said, really? He says, tell me about these meetings. I says, is it a torture thing where they're behind bars over there and we're over here? And he you know? says, no, no, they're all in the same room with you. I said, really? What else? He says, well, they bring in coffee and donuts and sometimes cake if there's a sobriety birthday. I said, what's that? And he said, well, you know, if you stay sober for a year, they give you a cake. I said, oh, really? And uh, I said, yeah, but I can't go. They'll call my name. Eh? And he says, no, they won't call your name. It's anonymous. That's what anonymous means. They'll just say AA and anyone who's approved, pre-approved by the guard, like, you know, gets to go to the AA meeting. And I said, how do you do that? And he says, well, you got to go talk to the guard and sign up for it. You have to have an alcohol-related offense. And I said, oh, I got that. <laughs> <laughs> then he said something that, uh, that was the clencher. I think it was a little bit of promotion on his part. He was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, he says, you know, after the meeting, David, uh, those women will come up. Some of them will shake your hand. Some of them will actually give you a hug. 
And I says, get out of here. <laughs> he says, no, they will. So I went to my first A meeting for coffee, donuts, and women, not in that order. <laughs> and sure enough, you know, after the meeting, back then I was young. I had all my hair. I didn't wear glasses, and I have these beautiful green eyes, you know. And, and every one of those early girls gave me a hug. So I wanted to keep coming back. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> Still do. <laughs> but the deal was that in order to go to that meeting, I had to go to another meeting with just the guys. I, I didn't like that meeting. <laughs> I used to sit there and be kind of bored and wish it was over and want to get back to my unit. Until one day I was given the greatest gift one alcoholic gives to another. There was this big native guy that used to be in the weight pit with me. He used to work out. He's one of the strongest guys in the jail and like you know, everyone respected him. Um, it was his turn. We were only seven in the group and it was his turn to, to tell his story. Like you know. And uh, you know we have an anonymity clause, eh? Like you know, anything Anything you hear here, whoever you see here, when you leave here, let it stay here, that kind of thing. Well, he took it one step further. He says, I'm going to tell my story today, and uh, if any of my story gets back out into population and I found out, find out who said something, I'm going to kill that man. <laughs> I think, wow, I'm going to listen to this guy. <laughs> so I did. I listened to him. And uh, again, like he gave me the greatest gift he said, you know, I walk around pumped up, you know, playing this tough con all the time, like, you know, no one messes with me, I don't mess with anyone, like, you know, I'm going to do solid time and go home alive. And I was identifying with all this tough guy stuff because that's all I knew, living in institutions for the 17 years that I spent there. Then this guy said something that touched me way down deep inside. I, I call it the pure truth that is shared from one alcoholic to another from the heart. He said, you know, when the lights go out at night, he says, and I'm alone in my bunk, and I think of my children out there and my wife and my loved ones, he says, I, I get so damn lonesome in here. He says that sometimes I, I cry myself to sleep quietly. And that's what opened my ears because Big Tough Dave, who played the role of tough guy, would do exactly that at night. I think of my little kids, my wife, my crazy family. Like, <laughs> I was lonesome, and I'd, I'd cry myself quietly to sleep. No one ever knew that. But this guy, by opening up and sharing honestly and openly from the heart, touched me in the heart. And uh, after that, I started listening. I think that is the real gift that one alcoholic gives to another, when you can connect with someone. I uh, went to meetings after that, and I paid attention. And in one of the meetings, I told you I was... I scored genius at age 17 on an IQ test. Well, in Alcoholics Anonymous, I heard something that was pure genius. Someone said, you know, if you don't take the first drink, you won't get drunk. <laughs> and I said, wow. <laughs> I said it backwards, wow. <laughs> you know what? It made complete sense to me. That was pure genius. Like a... I held on to that like a life preserver all, all these years. Uh, I've never taken the first drink, so therefore I've never gotten drunk. And uh, 
You know, I, I got out of that prison and the guard that put me on the bus at midnight on a, on a Friday. I got federal parole from a provincial jail. That's very rare, like, you know. But the guy at, in the parole board chair was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and when I went up before the parole board, they asked me what I was doing about my alcohol problem, and I told them I was going to AA, and the guy asked me, what do you do in AA? I said, I'm the chairman. <laughs> I was the chairman for my group that week, that month. <laughs> and uh, it sounded good. Anyway, it got me out of prison. <laughs> I, um, I came back. I got put on the bus by this member of Alcoholics Anonymous who was a guard that worked in the prison there, and... Uh, he said to me before he put me on the bus, he said, David, could you promise me three things that, that you'll do three things for me just once? And I said, what's that? He says, when you get home, can you say no to the first drink? And I said, yeah, okay. And he says, uh, can you look up Alcoholics Anonymous? And I said, yeah, okay. And he says, uh, can you go to a meeting? And I said, yeah, okay. He said, I just want you to do that once, he says, just once for me. Promise me you'll do that. He says, and if you do that, he says, I can pretty well guarantee you this. He said, you'll probably stay sober for one day. And uh, I said, yeah, right, okay. So when I got home, I knocked at the door where my brother-in-law was living now for a long time. And I had no Bible under my, under my arm. <laughs> Finally, someone woke up. I got home about 9.30 Saturday morning, and uh, someone came in a half-drunken stupor to the door to let me in and said, hey, Dave. We were celebrating your release. We heard you were getting out of prison yesterday. <laughs> and, uh, have a big party going on here, like lots of booze, lots of drugs. Like, you know, come on in. We'll wake everybody up and party on. And I said, no, no, don't. I said, I, I said no to the first drink. I said, I have to report for parole, so I can't take a drink or do any drugs. And uh guy staggered back and then probably passed out. And I looked up Alcoholics Anonymous. And... I, I spoke to someone, and they told me there was a meeting at the Nor End Group of Alcoholics Anonymous, which was on the corner of Selkirk Avenue and McGregor back then. And they told me to go there at 8 o'clock in the evening so I wouldn't have to walk into a big crowd of people because the meeting didn't start till 8.30. And I walked in there at 8 o'clock, and there was a guy named Al Nobis. I'm, I'm breaking his anonymity because he's in a big meeting in the sky now. And he uh, shook my hand. He welcomed me. He says, is this your first meeting here? And I said, it's the first meeting on the street. I said, I've been going to AA while I was in prison. I'm on parole. I said, but I don't want to talk. He says, well, that's good. He says, you don't have to talk. It's a speaker meeting. You <laughs> just have to sit down and listen. Yeah, so guess what? That was my in for AA, like, you know. For my first year in recovery, all I did was go to speaker meetings because I didn't want to talk. You people look too good, and I had too much shame and guilt and remorse for the things that I had done, like, you know, messed up my life. I didn't want to talk. So for my first year, I went to nothing but speaker meetings. And guess what happened? Uh, I learned to listen, and I listened to learn. But something beyond that happened. Like they say there's a word called salvation that means, one of the definitions of the word salvation is going home. And in those meetings, listening to you people share your stories, I walked a mile in your shoes, and uh, it took me back to a time when I was little in my home on the reserve. And people told stories in my home about life experience, about some were funny, some were tragic, some were uh, scary. 
And in AA, I, I was taken back to that time, and I think I started maturing from that time on, from the day I walked into AA. So if that's true, I'm about 35 years old now. Yeah. <laughs> I did a lot of things wrong in early sobriety. I, uh, I read the book from cover to cover because, you see, I'm a genius. <laughs> Put it on the shelf, never retained anything. I looked at the steps and I read them, but I never worked them. I was afraid to work them, especially four and five. See, I was a career criminal as a as a youngster, and and you know into my young adult life. I lived on the other side of the law. I I, I stole to survive, like you know, and I did a lot of horrendous things to survive, on the streets, and. Um, there was no way I was going to write these things down on a piece of paper and share them with another human being. I thought they'd put me in prison for the rest of my life, so I, I, I avoided those steps like the plague. And you know, untreated alcoholism will kill you, and it almost killed me. Three years into this program, I was uh, suicidal. I had found a new girlfriend who ran away and had an affair with some guy in Vancouver and got pregnant and uh, it was the end of the world for me like you know I was sick inside I was sick and, you know I, I couldn't live with a drink or without a drink you know I was at a you know, terrible terrible place emotionally and uh, when I finally got up enough courage or resolve I, I was going to take my own life I, uh, it took me two weeks of firm resolve isolating myself and I uh, I found a building downtown in Winnipeg across from the St. Charles Hotel, same side of the street on Notre Dame, and uh, it was 13 stories high, and I was going to jump off that building because there was a fire escape that you could reach from the ground and you could climb all the way up to the top of that building. Still there, still the same fireplace, fire escape, I mean, yeah. And uh, I, I go by it just about every day now when, as I go to meetings, and I, and I remember that. I never want to forget that. I, I walk down there, and uh, I remember walking past Skid Row where I grew up. And uh, when I got a block from that building, I was trying to keep my firm resolve that I'm just not going to think about anything, just go up that building and jump off because I was in such emotional pain. Then I believe God spoke to me in my mind, because in my mind I heard a question, and the question was, David, when you're you have three beautiful children, when they grow up, do you think they'll solve their problem the way you're about to solve yours? And in that instant, I, I broke into tears, like I literally stood at the turning point, like you know, I, I couldn't move, like I, I was a block from this building, it was to my right, and I started crying and just sobbing and. Uh, to my left in a basement was the Assiniboine group of Alcoholics Anonymous on uh, Lum Lombard Street back then in 1983. So instead of going up, I decided I was going to go in one more time and see if there was some answer there for me. And uh, I walked into this meeting early, and there was a m man named Basil. He's in the big meeting in the sky now. He shook my hand, and he saw tears in my eyes, and he asked me if I wanted to talk. And I said, no, I can't talk. Too emotionally distraught. He said, that's okay. He says, sit down, it's a speaker meeting tonight. <laughs> it's a Saturday night. <laughs> so I got to sit through another speaker meeting. Then after the meeting, there was a little old man. He must have been about 100 years old, I thought. 
he shuffled up to me and he had a, in his hand a grapevine. He says, hey, fella, this is the last grapevine. You want to help the group out? And I said, sure. I dug in my pocket and broke out all my change. He said, it's only a buck. I said, no, here, take it all. I said, I don't need this where I'm going. And he, uh, he stood there and he, he wouldn't leave, eh? Like, you know, he shook his finger at me. He goes, I want you to read that now, eh? And I said, yes, I will. Didn't go away. I want you to read that now, eh? And I said, yes, yes, I heard you, I will, you know. I thought maybe he was deaf or hard of hearing, eh? <clears throat> anyway, he still didn't go away. He said, I want you to read that now. And I said, okay, and I opened it up. And I couldn't read because my contact lenses were all out of focus. My eyes were filled with tears. But in the center of this grapevine, there was a nice picture of dark clouds. And out of the clouds were coming little rays of sunlight. And it was a nice picture. And on, on the caption in big, bold, black letters, it read, Hope today is joy tomorrow. And I balked it. I said, God, I wish I had a little bit of hope. Because when I leave here, I might not make it home. I might go to that building and jump off. I believe God listens to humble prayers. Because I, uh, I left that meeting and uh, went home and shook rough that night. The next morning I woke up with a new resolve that I was going to study this book the way it was meant to be as a text. I was going to work those steps. And I did that. I, I joined a step study group because I know that this is a we program. This is not a me program. I, I'm powerless as an individual, but with you people and the higher power, I'm part of a we that works. And I joined a step study group and I went through all of the steps. And when I got to four and five, I did a fearless and searching moral inventory myself and I went and shared it with uh, Reverend Bill Vincent, giant of a man. And, uh, you know, I felt clean for the first time. And I continued with all the rest of the steps. And my life turned around very quickly, like, you know, 180 degrees, like, you know. That girl who ran away and got pregnant came back to me. We got married. I married her even though she was carrying someone else's child. Married her in April. And she had her baby in June. And I was there when he was born. And he was born severely handicapped with Down syndrome and autism. And... Uh, I fell in love with the little guy because he was born by cesarean section and the first person he saw was me. <laughs> first person I saw was him. <laughs> and we instantly bonded. And, uh, you know, he's a, he's a miracle child. He wasn't supposed to live. He had a big hole in his heart. Um, he had a fight for life from, from, from the time he came into this world. And, uh, you know, all I could do was pray. Like, you know, I prayed, you know, and I asked the higher power for help and I took him for spiritual healing at a medicine man doctor said they couldn't do anything for him that he'd die probably in four months if not if he survived till age four or five he'd probably die on the operating table because you know most children didn't survive then and uh, he made it like you know he, he survived he healed miraculously I believe in the power of prayer like you know and uh I've seen so many miracles in this program that are a direct result of that higher power in prayer. And uh, when I uh, I went home to my home community, my reserve, 
And uh, I trained to become a hospital administrator in the federal hospital there. And in 1986, I graduated and became the first hospital, a native hospital administrator in Canada. I was a poster boy for the schools here in Manitoba. Like, you know, no one had ever done that before. And, uh, you know, my life was just incredible. Wonderful things were happening. Then when I was, uh, my son was about two years old, his, his mom just left one day and never came back. She still hasn't returned. I still celebrate our anniversary. Gary's laughing at her. Every April 7th, I celebrate our anniversary. We've been married 25 years, but she's been gone for 23. <laughs> and, uh, she left me that little guy and four, three of my own children. I got my children back from my first marriage, and I raised them. Uh, Everyone in my family sobered up after I did. My mom sobered up. She was a horrendous drunk, like, you know, and uh, my sisters, my in-laws, everyone sobered up. And I had a really good life. When my little guy was school age, I had to leave the reserve and leave that big job and come to the city here, and I got a job as a, as a curriculum developer for the Native Addictions Council of Manitoba, like, you know, developing their or uh, counselor curriculum. Then I became the executive director there. Then when my little guy uh, uh, became too old to go to daycare, I, I quit everything. I, I, I was a stay-at-home dad. We lived on welfare in a house that was 130 years old, very humbly, but I, I was used to living in and shacks and <laughs> one rooms like stuff like that. So we survived. It was incredible. And uh, I went to meetings every every chance I got, pretty well daily. Sometimes today I, I even go to three meetings a day. You know, today, like you know, each day, if I can. If I'm not at work. I'm still looking after that handicapped child. He's uh, 25 now. He wasn't supposed to live till five. He wasn't supposed to live till 15. He's 25. He's still happy. Very loved, gives great hugs, taught me how to be gentle. I used to be a really violent person at one time, and this little guy taught me gentleness. But most of all, like, you know, uh, what I read in 1983, their hope today is joy tomorrow has come true for me thousands of times over. I like hugs, I still like all the pretty girls. And, uh, when I think about how blessed I am today, like, you know, I know this is a miracle program. And it's thanks to that higher power and you people. And I love you all very much. Thank you. Mm -hmm.